read the word of God as we find it this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. You saw in connection with Lord's Day 46. 1 Peter chapter 1. We will read the entire chapter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, and to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The trial of your faith, being much more precious than the gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, <coughs> where the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. If he call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, Verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. By him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead, 
gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, and to unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away. The word of the Lord endureth forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Notice especially that Peter calls, speaks to us in this passage of God as our Father, through the Spirit and by the work of Jesus Christ, that we also are born of God as children of God by the adoption of grace through regeneration. It's against that background that we would consider Lord's Day 46 this morning, which begins the treatment now of the Lord's Prayer, and particularly how it is that we address and approach near unto God. Question and answers 120 and 121. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father? That immediately in the very beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. Namely, that God has become our Father in Christ, much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith, that our parents will refuse us earthly things. Why is it here added, which art in heaven? Lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from his almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. Our Savior teaches us to draw near to God in prayer, and in response to the question, Lord, teach us to pray, teaches us to address God as our Father which art in heaven. When we consider the Psalms, we see that the psalmist addresses God in many ways. But addressing God as our Father in heaven is in fact part of the spiritual blessings of the unfolding of God's grace in the work of our salvation. The psalms are rich in their understanding and indeed the psalmist confesses that God is as a father to us, as his people. But it belongs to the wonder of our Savior's coming into the world that he begins to teach his church that in the work of redemption we are brought even nearer unto God than the Old Testament saints were at the time that they lived under the administration of the law. And that through sanctification of the Spirit and the work of Christ on the cross, you and I are now taught to draw near to God in a more intimate way than the Old Testament saints could fully comprehend. 
to address God as our Father and to guard us from misunderstanding that, Jesus teaches us which art in heaven. It is in that light that you and I would also ponder our own prayer life and what that means for us as children of God. We are to seek God our Father in heaven. That embraces all the various forms of address in the scriptures, but it sets at the center of it that which our catechism rightly says is in the framing of our mind and understanding, the foundation of our prayer. The catechism isn't talking about the framing of that doctrinally only, though it has a doctrinal foundation and is such, but also the spiritual disposition of your mind and heart and how you approach God in your attitude toward him. With that in mind, we want to consider seeking God, our Father in heaven, first of all addressing God as Father, then addressing God as heavenly, and then also addressing God as his people, for we are taught to pray not simply my Father, but our Father. It's proper, beloved, that you and I review something. We are made children of God, by the wonder of grace and the work of salvation. We are not by nature God's children. We are conceived and born in sin and by nature children of wrath. God in his mercy has willed according to the grace of election to separate to himself a people for himself out of all nations and to redeem and adopt us in Christ to be his children and heirs. Peter addresses this epistle to the strangers, and in fact, in the Greek original, it's the elect strangers, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the idea of that is that God from eternity wills to be to us as his people, a father. To take us into a living relationship in which he has become our God and father. Now that is grounded in God's own triune covenant life. He is within himself, father, son, and Holy Ghost. That is revealed to us in the language here, also, when it speaks of the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, who is therefore the Son of God. But that internal distinction, while it is vital for our understanding, is not that which Jesus has on the foreground here in our instruction and prayer. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost dwells in a bond of communion, of love, and fellowship within himself. He dwells in light unto which no man can approach. He is but one God who has created the heavens and the earth in the fullness of his triune activity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
as the word, as the working of the breath of God upon the creation and by the almighty power of God as one God. When Jesus, therefore, teaches us to pray, our Father, he is teaching us to pray that prayer from the viewpoint of our redemption in him as the only begotten of the Father come into our flesh and blood. We pray to the triune God, Jehovah, the I Am, through his Son incarnate in our flesh and blood. We do so in such a way that we address the living God in all the fullness of his divine glory as our Father. Jesus is not teaching us to pray simply to the first person of the Trinity. That doctrinal error is still floats around, but that is not the idea at all. And it is the triune God as our Father who has from eternity loved us, held us in his knowledge of love from eternity as the objects of his grace and mercy in his electing love, willing us to be to himself a people. That's foreknowledge is not foreseeing. It is a knowing in love from eternity eternally in such a way that his counsel and purpose is eternally fixed and determined in himself out of mere grace, and he has from eternity willed and ordained us to be to himself a people. He has chose us in Christ. Now it's in the light of that that you and I pray to Jehovah, the triune God, as our Father, We do that on the foundation of the finished work of the cross. So we said a few moments ago, you and I are not by nature children of God. We need a redeemer who delivers us from the bondage of sin and death. And according to that sovereign purpose of God's grace in election, God sends his son into the world to save and redeem through the shedding of blood By making atonement for sin, a people redeemed through that blood to himself. And Peter even emphasizes that later in this chapter, that when we pray and call upon the Father, we do that as those who know that we were redeemed, not with corruptible things as gold and silver, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus is the eternal, only begotten Son of God within the life of the Trinity. He is the one who took upon himself our flesh and blood, our human nature, sanctified it, by the work of the Spirit in his conception that he should be without sin and yet take upon himself all our infirmities and the judgment and curse of God due to us for all our sins and make atonement for them and therein by the shedding of his blood buy us back or redeem us 
and the very precious blood of his own sacrifice on the cross. You and I are children of God, not in ourselves, but only through the atoning propitiatory work of our Savior on the cross, his suffering and his death, an atonement to make payment for our sins. Through that death, he has blotted out all the guilt of our sin and obtained for us righteousness before the judgment seat of God, that we, through that work of adoption, might be delivered from the prison house of sin and death, brought near to God in righteousness, and when God sets his name upon us, therefore, as his children, he does so as the righteous and holy God, through the righteous and holy Savior, redeeming to himself a people who are righteous and holy by the wonder work of God's sovereign effectual grace and his pardon for sin and righteousness and in his mercy towards you and I. And that means that you and I are children of God by adoption. The legal adoption papers were signed in the cross and in the blood of Christ. And the work of the Spirit is to beget us from death to life through the wonder of God's regenerating grace. That is where Peter begins his epistle and his instruction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, the Father of our mediator and redeemer, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or living hope, that by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Generation is a quickening of a dead sinner unto life that makes us to be spiritually, by the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of our living risen Savior, to be children of God. Though sinners, though conceived and born in sin, and though by nature children of wrath, but now by grace children of God, Righteous in Christ without any sin before the judgment seat of God, and renewed after the image of God in Christ to be God's children and heirs. That is the wonder of his abundant mercy towards us. That you who were dead in trespasses and sins hath he quickened together with Christ and made to sit together with Christ in heavenly places. So the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 explains exactly the same thing, grounds it likewise in Ephesians 1 in our election and in the wonder of God's saving mercy manifested in Christ. You and I are children of God and God is become our Father in Christ. Now the Catechism, having pointed out that doctrinal foundation, which you and I must clearly understand, and we cannot go into every aspect of it this morning, 
But it sets that before us and says, now what does that mean for your prayer life? What is your attitude? How does that shape the way you speak to God? What does that say when you bring all your burdens of your life and your petitions before God? The psalmist, though he does not use the name Father, definitely manifests in all of the psalms the burdens of one whose relationship with God is that of a child under his care. That doesn't mean we always have to use the phrasing here, but it is intended to teach us, as the Catechism points out, that immediately at the very beginning of our prayer, purpose of that language as Jesus teaches us to pray is to stir up spiritually a childlike reverence for and confidence in God. The truth that God is our Father is the doctrinal foundation, but it is exactly that spiritual identity and knowledge of the wonder and mercy of God which he has wrought in Jesus Christ. As it lives in our faith, which is his work of grace in us, stirred by the Spirit, that you and I lift up our hearts in the consciousness that these things are not simply true in a formal sense of the word, but that that profound wonder is true, and it's true for me and for you. That God is become our God and Father in Jesus Christ. That means, of course, that he is our covenant God. That he is the one who loves us from before the foundations of the world that he is the one who gave his own only begotten and eternal son unto the death of the cross to redeem us. And that very really, as Peter expresses it, it is according to his abundant mercy that he hath begotten us to a living hope by the very power of our Savior's resurrection from the dead as our living Lord. Our generation imparts, by the power of Christ's resurrection, spiritual, heavenly resurrection life to our heart, and to the life and activity of our souls. Contemplating that and living in the experience of it you and I stand before an awesome wonder that the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has become our God and Father, and that he regards us as his children, and that he takes us into the intimacy of love and fellowship and communion with him as he has become our God and Father. It's all of grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. Nothing in your life warrants it. It is of mere grace, according as he hath chosen us in Christ Jesus, and according to his abundant mercy, 
begotten us again to a lively or living hope, the hope of children who have an inheritance with their Father in heaven by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter adds, to an inheritance, incorruptible, not like the inheritance you have here below and all the earthly things your hands handle from day to day, but to an inheritance incorruptible, and it's undefiled, there's no sin there either. It doesn't fade away like that car that's slowly deteriorating and rotting in your driveway and depreciating. Or the house that needs to have a new roof. Or the things of this life that fade away because you grow old and you fade away like the grass that today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven. Inheritance does not. And he very beautifully adds that so that you and I understand the privilege of our being children of God to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It has your name on it already. It's written in the Lamb's book of life. It is to that God and that Father who so loved us We pray. We draw near unto him and lift up our hearts, whether it's in congregational prayer, whether it's you as a father or mother leading your family in prayer, whether it's you as children of God, whether it's you young people leading the other young people in the young people's society, is to that living God, as he is our God and Father, for Jesus' sake who of mere grace loved us from before the foundations of the world, that we come in prayer. You understand that shapes the whole framing of our prayer. It shapes the fact that we have confidence. We're not praying to some God afar off who is indifferent to all our needs, and who is disinclined not to hear us in our trials and troubles, but some of the gods of the heathen. They cry out unto them, and then they shrug their shoulders and say, whatever God wills. They may have this conception of God's sovereignty, but it's not the sovereign love of a father who always works all things together for good to them that love him. It's not the love of a father who pities his children, who remembers that we are creatures of the dust. It's not the love of a father before whom we stand in their understanding who chastens in love. Our God is a faithful father. Now, you understand that means certain, has certain implications. It means, number one, if we are wayward and unruly children, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. When we are weak, he is strong. He is our refuge in the storms of life. When we are in the midst of trial and affliction, and we know not the way in which it will go. 
He knows. He sent it. He works it. He works it for our good in such a way that though it tries our faith, it works our spiritual welfare and salvation. He even speaks of that here. When he talks about if ye are, that for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Even in those things, in the battle of faith and in the wounds that come with it, and the sorrows and trials that come, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He's working your good. That doesn't necessarily mean your present earthly happiness in the sense that the world would speak of it. But he's working that which is to the praise and honor and glory of his name in you for the glory of his grace in Jesus Christ when he comes again. That's why. And that means that that childlike confidence and reverence of faith approaches God with the assurance of heart that he loves me, that he works my good, that he hears my cries, though I may not at the moment see how he hears and answers my prayer. There are times when I have to wait patiently on him, just like you tell your little children, let me finish this, you wait there. God deals with us as a father with his children in love. But he is the father. And we are the children. And the principle, honor thy father and mother, is first of all given to us in our relationship also with our heavenly father. But in harmony with that, the Catechism rightly says to us now that means that he will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith in the sphere of what his word says than our parents will refuse us earthly things. That's drawing, of course, on Jesus' instruction. Ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be open unto you. That's drawing on the instruction of our heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, that he is indeed faithful, long-suffering, merciful, and gracious. It's drawing on the truth that if he clothes the grass of the field that today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven and feeds the sparrows, then he will also clothe and feed and care for you, O ye of little faith. And that he is indeed a father, that if we ask of him for that which is needful for us, we ask for a fish, he's not going to give us a stone or a scorpion or some such thing. Now that frames, of course, your and my understanding in the truth that we stand before that will of God as children ready to receive what is his good purpose in our life, and that it is not this, that we strive 
in a sinful way. So that we say, not thy will, but my will be done. Childlike prayer involves childlike confidence, but also the humility and meekness of a child who leaves those things which cannot be known in the Lord's hands, humbles itself before God and submits to him. Now it's in that connection that the catechism says now, God has become our Father. He will much less deny us that we ask of him in true faith than our earthly parents. But then remember, we pray, which is here added, which art in heaven. That in the first place, lest you and I form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty. That God is our Father is not this, that he is a human Father. He is divine. His wisdom is unsearchable. It is endless. His purpose of grace in our life embraces his purpose of grace in all things. And your place and your calling and your unique position in the life of the church in the time in which you were born and in the life of the world around you, all of the circumstances of life and the things that belong to it, under his sovereign disposition and under his will. Jesus is going to go on to teach us to pray, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. God is God. And as such, he knows what he is doing Better than you do. You and I need to take heed to that because sometimes in prayer, when we want something very badly, we can become like little children being impatient for something. Uh, You see that sometimes in the grocery store. Can I have, can I have, can I have? I want, I want, I want. And the answer is no, it's not good for you. This is the way we must go. So that you and I do not bring our Father in heaven down to the level of a mere man. Because then, beloved, that confidence, that reverence, and that confession would be destroyed. God is simply a mere man, or to be conceived of that way, then... Where is the reverence and confidence that he is our God and Father and faithful? Christian church is in a serious decline in its spiritual sickness in departing from the truth of God's sovereign work of grace. He is the living God, the Holy One. And it is his majesty, power, and glory, his ability indeed, that I may expect all things from his almighty power that are necessary for body and soul, that forms an integral part of the foundation and the confidence of my prayer and yours.
Because if he's not that, then he's a father whose hands are empty, whose comfort fails, whose loving kindness is simply a fellow feeling of pity which cannot work by its power, deliverance, and comfort, and consolation. Then you and I have indeed no refuge under the shadow of his wings, except he be both our Father and our Almighty God, you and I would have no refuge in him. And that's why the Catechism, again, doesn't approach this simply from the viewpoint of now a Lord's Day on God's providence, though it references the idea, his heavenly majesty, and that we are to form no earthly conceptions of it, or uh, the first commandment, but exactly in this, that because of his heavenly majesty and power, because he who is our God and Father is indeed the Almighty, the Lord of heaven and earth, therefore you and I may expect from his almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. Lacking that, that expectation is hollow, it's vain. But it is not so. Our God is in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased, but he is pleased to save and redeem his people and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring many sons to glory. It is his will to take those in whom he has wrought the wonder of his grace and according to the next chapter in Peter, take them as living stones and build up a temple, a spiritual house, a covenant dwelling place, and set them as his children as a holy priesthood of believers to offer up the sacrifice of thanksgiving. He is working in history and in your life and in the life of all those round about you and in the life of God's church, the wonder of his saving work and grace in such a way that he works in your life as you lift up your prayer before him for what is needful for you as to your spiritual life, your conscious mental life, your soul, and your body, your earthly sojourning of food and drink and all the things that are needful, and your infirmities, your sickness, your pain, your trials of mind and heart, you and I may in that wonder, expect all good things. Good things necessary, not everything I want, I will be done, but necessary for soul and body. Because he is a faithful God and Father, willing as such, and being almighty God, he is able to give us all good. 
That prayer ascends before him through the mediator, Jesus Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us and by the work of the Spirit in our hearts who cries, Abba, Father, and whose Spirit makes intercession with our spirit, testifying that we are children of God, and also interceding for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, as Paul explains in Romans 8, that God has become our God and Father in Christ involves also all the work of our Savior as our intercessor, our righteousness, our Lord. And it's in connection with that that Jesus very briefly adds to that instruction, therefore, an element that doesn't receive perhaps the emphasis in this Lord's Day, but it's there. And that is that you and I pray not simply my Father, but our Father which art in heaven. And we pray in, in the union of faith with Christ, as members of the body of Christ, as those who carry in our hearts the needs not only of our own personal life, but of our brethren in the life of God's church and kingdom. And we have an eye to the needs of the life of God's church. And that point is going to come out again and again in the Catechism as it treats, indeed, the language of our Savior. But our prayer addresses God in the unity of faith, in the bond of fellowship and communion with Christ in the church. And in fact, one of the things that the Word of God tells us, if you've got a problem with your brother, go and be reconciled and then bring your offering. In a sense, it's saying before you pray, make sure that you have also dealt with your earthly ties and relationships and cleared them up that you may come in the unity of faith and brotherly love and prayer. Prayer is not simply a private spiritual activity alone. It is that, but it's not just that also embraces the reality that you and I call upon God as members of the body of Christ, standing in communion with one another in marriage, in family life, in the fellowship of the congregation, and that we seek the Lord in the organism of the body of Christ. We do that too in the consciousness that the needs of God's church and kingdom go beyond the borders of this one local congregation to the other expressions of the body of Christ in other churches, in our denomination, in the world around us, and indeed in those that suffer especially persecution for righteousness' sake as children of God in the sinful world. Remember God's afflicted saints. Why in the bulletins you have the record of things of the trials of the church with whom we labor in Myanmar 
or the upheavals and trials of the saints in India or the labors in the Philippines or Northern Ireland or Singapore. Those are your brethren. You pray for them. It isn't simply interesting information. It's, it's partly something that should form part of our prayer life. Same thing with the various functions and uh, other activities and the schools. The whole organic life of the churches in common. And in the broader context, even the life of the church afar off. So that we pray concerning our God and Father as his people. Peter, after all, is addressing a people who are formed by the grace of God, not only as God's temple, but who are made to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Being born again of the mercy of God forms the church, and it forms the body of Christ. It forms the nation of the redeemed, a priesthood of believers who walk in the fear of God. That means that this address very richly encapsulates a whole rich and diverse reality of what our prayer life should be characterized by. And as you and I contemplate it again and again in the catechism, we're going to be reminded how far we fall short in this spiritual activity in the life of our families and of our own spiritual life and of our need. We need to say, teach us, Lord, also to pray from the heart fully, our Father which art in heaven. Then indeed God is glorified by us and our prayers wait upon his will and receive an answer in his grace. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, how much we have to learn to pray in thy house and before thy face, thy children. Teach us indeed to pray Hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Give us grace to submit ourselves to thy will, to receive from thy fatherly hand every blessing and acknowledge thee as the fountain of all good. Grant that our spiritual life in prayer might also grow. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.